Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is episode 26 and the date is June 10th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in once again. Uh, today will be a, probably a shorter episode than normal. Um, I didn't really have a chance to do much of the deep work that I wanted to do. Well, I, I kind of tried, but... <laughs> I kind of ran into some frustration. So if you followed along the last few episodes, you'll know that I was li- I was researching a company that I realized would take more time for me to understand. And that particular company is called Elastic. They are a search company. And for me, that made me think, what does that even mean? Because when you think about search, you think about Google search. And it's practically this company uh, has this kind of open sourced code base that engineers can or developers in general can deploy and create their own search functions inside their um i guess companies and like apps etc so examples are like if you had the uber app you would use this elastic stack as i call it it's some it practically incorporates four products and the search function of you know matching finding drivers or finding customers is all utilized through the elastic stack where they have this search functionality that's implemented into the product and it can whiff sift through all this kind of data and pull out all the required ones really quickly so that's the gist of it but it still felt like i did not understand the company and so a good part of my day was struggling <laughs> to go through the annual report and try to understand what the company was talking about. And I kind of got to the point where, you know, the, the the feeling of being a fraud where I was reading along, but at that point, like the words just didn't mean anything to me and it was just getting technical and I wanted to understand why this was significant, but I just could not understand it. Maybe it's not significant. I don't know. But um, the reason I started looking at the company and the reason I will continue to look at the company is because it is a public company that has a completely distributed uh, workforce so they're i.e remote first they're not like the COVID companies that are remote by result um, but a company that decided to be remote first and honestly I would invest in Automatic the the company that owns WordPress and WooCommerce if they were a public company maybe I'll do that through Salesforce because Salesforce has I think a 10% ownership of automatic so that is that's honestly an option i've been looking into but it just seems like such a small component of that overall business to make that a core part of the thesis anyhow going coming back from the tangent i said i'd keep it short but you know me i love to talk um yeah so that's kind of why i wanted to look into the company purely based on the culture side like i always do but uh, the business model just has just been tricky for me to understand just given my non-technical background so after kind of bouts of frustration like it's it's ridiculous i'd be going on google and youtube and asking the world what is elastic or what do they do and most of the videos kind of assume you're a data scientist or some kind of developer so they're talking about json queries and 
I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and so I decided to go really basic and I realized I don't even know what open source actually is. Like I, I kind of understand the theoretical concept that, you know, everybody gets to see the source code and it's open and people can contribute to it. There's like a community. I think Android is based on an open source thing, but I I don't think I really appreciated what that was. So I tried to find uh, the simplest video I could. Like I was typing in open source for dummies and open source for non-techs. And I found a video called what is open source explained in Lego? So I figured this is probably perfect for me. It's probably dumbed down enough for that a four-year-old could understand. And that is the exact uh, learning level that I am in. So it was actually a pretty good video, I'd say. Like, um, And I'll just kind of keep this brief on the open source part because uh, if you watch the video, it's really short. I think it's it's been an awesome way for you to learn about what open source uh, code is. And essentially the analogy they use is, is kind of like a house where you have a open source architect that would kind of be like the house architect. So if you wanted to build, you know, let's say the traditional Victorian style uh, architecture, architect based uh, house, um, open source allows it so that a the open source architect would have you know, this design plans for the Victorian house kind of out there and you as the home, I guess, built homeowner would can just pick that up and you can build it yourself or you can hire com- other companies who, who will use those codes and build that house for you. And because it's, you know, freely available, you don't really need to be captivated, uh, captive to a particular builder. If builder A sucks, you can go to builder B and you can say, hey, here's an open source plan that is av- available for everyone. So please use this. Um, and the benefit of being open source is that it kind of forms a community and maybe after you build your Victorian house, you hire this different architect or, you know, this planner who implements some Gothic, uh, architecture to like a part of your house. And then that plan can actually be added on top of the existing open source architecture. So that is a contribution. And then the actual, um, architect that controls the open source code can actually choose to include that as part of that open source, like it's code package. And then it eventually kind of expands and then you have more open source code and it's kind of this pay it forward movement. And it seems like, you know, the initial concerns people might have if they are not familiar is that, yeah, like, isn't it unsafe? Isn't there risks to it? Because it's kind of available to everyone, but it seems like there is a mode of control where although it is open source, you still have the, open source architect who actually kind of moderates things. It's kind of like a Reddit moderator, I felt, as I was learning about it. But it seems like the control is maintained. And that was the sense I was getting from Elastic as well. Anywho, that was what I learned about open source code. I actually feel like I have a better understanding of it now. And so I can't, so I won't just laugh it off like, you know, you do in cocktail parties where you go, oh yeah, I I totally understand what you're talking about, but you actually really don't. Now I feel like a little, I understand a little bit more but that's kind of at the level I'm at with the company I've been looking at and just putting my head into the annual report. Like I, I scoured the website. I was trying to read about what the company does and I just still couldn't understand it, at least to the level that I want to, where I, I can just talk about it fluently and just conceptually visualize in my head what the actual product is, how I would use it. And I don't know, maybe I have to learn coding. 
that's something I've been actually thinking about as well, where if I learned to be a developer, maybe that'll also open up a new avenue of more business models that I'll be familiar with. But that's for a later day. But the big thing is that I don't plan to give up on learning about the company. It might just take some time. Anywho, so the, among that frustration, I decided I'm going to do something I wanted to do for a while and go on a Google search rampage on weird companies. So I had this idea of what if I searched on, so I actually don't use Google uh, at all. I use DuckDuckGo because I want to support the privacy movement. And so I've actually not used Google for quite a while now. I also don't use a Chrome browser browser either. Um, I use Mozilla and I use DuckDuckGo as my main search engine. And so, yeah, if any of you listeners work for them, please sponsor me because I, <laughs> I'd i love to uh, be partnered with you. But anyhow, um, so when I, when I did a DuckDuckGo search of just, I, I went through a myriad of search terms like weird companies, companies with weird cultures, weird organizational cultures, um, and specifically public companies with weird cultures and public companies that are decentralized. And... Unfortunately, most of the results were very um, uh, disappointing. Uh, many articles by, you know, like not to pick on them, but you know, like the entrepreneur uh, was it Entrepreneur Magazine or, but the better part, you know, Forbes Magazine or any of the finance sites like, like CNBC. I don't even look at CNBC, but most, you know. They talk about very typical companies. They'll share Facebook, Google, Zappos comes out a ton, um, Netflix, Warby Parker, uh, Patagonia. Like these are companies that I already know about, but I wanted to find a company that was obscure that I wouldn't know about, and I kind of I I ended up finding one, which is a public company, and I had to go back to an article written in 1999 titled "The Most Decentralized Company in the World." So. That's a pretty bold statement. When I read that, I thought, hmm, could it be a technology company? And, you know, 1999, how did the tech bubble? Turns out it's a manufacturing company. They, you know, it's a classic. They have assembly lines. They have these massive machines. They make nuts and bolts and nails and widgets and um, all kinds of plastic stuff. Tons of different weird, uh, I guess, widgets is a good term for it that they produced. It reminded me a little of Semco, actually, because of the industrial nature of the business and how it was completely uh, decentralized and, and had this kind of distributed company model. And what I learned about the company, uh, so it's a public company, it's called Illinois Toolworks, I actually should mention that. So I think the ticker is ITW, and it's still around. Um, actually, it's probably a good thing to kind of share what do, what does the financials look like on a high level? Um, just take all these with a grain of salt as I talk through it. But I just want to show that it's not a failing company. So, yeah, if I look at the return on invested capital, um, over the last 10 years, the 10-year median return on invested capital is 20%. Um, in the last, let's say, five years, I'm going to say the average is about... Um, like low 20%, low to mid 20%, which is pretty great for an industrials company. Uh, their gross mar- their, uh, gross profit over the last 10 years has been 40%. Their EBIT, so operating margins at 20%. So it's a pretty solid company. Um, and that's, it's been like that for the last decade. And 
so overall, when I looked at that, I was like, okay, well, probably worth looking into a little further. And what makes a company unique is that, once again, touching upon the dis. Well, okay, so kind of all over the place, but forgive me. So the article kind of starts off with how the CEO, um, he's no longer the CEO, he retired in 2005, but uh, Pharrell, it, Pharrell's the last name of the CEO, I forget his first name. Anyhow, he talks about how he, he bans email um, in the company's computer networks because he wants the people to go out and visit operation sites. And I understand it's 1999, so you know it's not as, it might not be as crazy because I guess if you did that now, people might be up in arms and you know, say their basic rights are being impacted. Although I think not allowing email for a good chunk of the day is probably good. Like I don't even check email. I think I check email like once a day on average and I don't reply to emails often. Um, it's just a, a choice I make because I hate emails. But anyhow, um, <laughs> yeah, so the company's unique. Like it just starts off really unique where he bans emails and I go, okay, this is fascinating. And they also have this unique 80-20 rule where it and it's still it seems like it's incorporated still in the business because i looked at um their whole i guess quote-unquote enterprise strategy that they talk about in their own website where they describe how the company works and their 80 20 model is that they want to focus all their efforts like their sales efforts and the product efforts um on the 20 percent of customers who make up 80 percent of the business and that's always been it seems like the core focus of the business itself and then we kind of get into the decentralized aspect which i found very unique so itw as i think the company's kind of grown through acquisitions because generally you kind of start off with one type of product maybe you just make nails and you might choose to expand but sometimes it's easier to acquire customers because it takes time to build all the machinery and the plants um, to produce a completely different kind of you know product itself because these are not software products these are you know they can be pretty big they're like all equipments and parts that go into machinery so you need pretty specialized um plants especially designed machines to create all that anyhow so i think it's natural for them to take on this kind of acquisitive nature in their strategy and so apparently the example that's given is like when itw acquired uh two particular companies that were welding businesses they split the two companies up into 20 different business units and each business unit is owned by a general manager. And that's kind of all over ITW where they try to break everything down to the smallest kind of singular product line possible so that that general manager can only focus on that one product line and that product line can be um, directly compared to its closest competitor and everything um, related to management, it's all up to the general manager as long as they are always ahead of the competition. And the job of the senior management team at headquarters is to continuously, uh, I guess, challenge every general manager to figure out, you know, how do you win the cus- uh, customers over competitors? How, you know, what are you doing better in your process? But they've kind of built this entrepreneurial environment where each general manager is just completely responsible for one product line at on most cases and. You have your own PNL, and that's just really what you do. And apparently, when um, a unit underperforms the competition, um, Pharrell, or even sometimes even if it outperforms the competition, uh, Pharrell would Pharrell the CEO would split the unit into more pieces um, to make it even more focused, so that 
if it's doing really well, you want to really figure out which product is doing well. So it, they'll, he'll break it up. Or if the unit's underperforming, he wants to figure out which product is the result, the reason for this underperformance. And he calls it the uh, corporate mitosis. And some may argue that the idea of constantly splitting units up will kind of duplicate costs because you can't centralize all these costs and get quote-unquote cost efficiencies. But if I remember what... Um, happened in Semco uh, from Ricardo Semler, it, the gains from doing that and going specialized and creating that independent unit far outweigh any kind of centralized cost uh, cost benefit. And that's exactly what Farrell says as well um, from his experience of splitting up all the units in ITW. And I think that's probably the argument that you can make for like a company like Constellation Software as well, because Constellation Software is exactly that. They have so many different uh, business units and they don't centralize any of it. And that's sometimes a criticism that people give, but that might just be just short termism where it just looks so obvious and an easy win, but it's because people are just too afraid to do the other route where it just doesn't look socially obvious, but it can actually in the long term generate uh, more profits overall. So that was a pretty unique company that I looked into. Um, I took a look at the proxy quickly. I couldn't resist. And I learned that Pharrell retired in 2005. Um, I thought he was the CEO of Character, so that was unfortunate. Um, however, the person that's the CEO right now, I forget his last name um, or just his name in general, but I remember reading that he was with the company since 1980. So, you know, he's a, he's a lifer. So that's a positive sense in that zone. But the founder, the founding family, um, the founder was Byron Smith, I believe. So the Smith family owns 7% of the business through a trust. And it doesn't seem like any of the Smith members are really involved in the day-to-days of the company. They're just kind of collecting dividends, which you know I can't really fault them for. Um, and, the comp- and the business itself doesn't seem to be really in a rapid growth phase. Like I looked at the free cash flow and much of the free cash, uh, operating cash flow is just completely used half into dividends and half into buying back stock, whether that's a smart pejorative or not, um, that remains to be seen. I think one thing that also stood out for me is that in their long-term incentives uh, measurement, so for all the CEOs and executives, I think about 50% of their long-term pay is allocated to a performance measurement, which is pretty standard, I'd say, for US CEOs. And But the unique thing, dum-da-da-dum, drum roll, is that their performance measure includes after-tax return on invested capital as a measure. If you're new to this podcast, you might think, this guy's crazy. Why is he so obsessed with this? But it's because, frustratingly enough, so many many performance-based compensation nowadays, whether it's like tech, tech companies with, you know, like all the fang companies or you know just most companies in general they they'll use some bullshit performance metric like total shareholder returns or you know anything related to the stock price is just such a shitty measure of any kind of performance or even just revenue growth alone um eps growth i think they're all just pretty trash metrics but what you really want to see is some kind of return on investment uh, measure. So you know that capital allocation is being uh, taken seriously. And at the same time, that the business is constantly reallocating capital, just generally, um, you know, whether it's investing internally into the company or whether it's externally with M&As, like 
you're just constantly thinking about return on investment um, on your capital base. And you just want to, I think, have that mindset ingrained in the manager. Anyhow, so it was really amazing to see that, although that was one of the three different metrics. They still looked at operating margin and they looked at EPS growth. Um, but they had after tax return invested capital and another thing after tax, which is also really important. So yeah, that was pretty exciting. I got pretty pumped up about that. But I think for me, not having a founder involved and, you know, it's it's a hundred year old company. Um, it just wasn't as exciting, but it was a pretty cool business model to learn about um, just from the whole decentralized point of view. And I'll just kind of riff over this. Um, this company came up a couple times called Great Little Box Company. And the reason I wanted to kind of talk about it briefly is that it's a Canadian business based out in British Columbia. And it was kind of listed in a couple of different articles as like one of the top places with great culture. Um, it's a family run business that I think just makes boxes. And something unique about them is that they provide um, monetary rewards to employees for finding ways of saving costs. So, like stories of like employees will get paid like two thousand dollars for correctly uh, suggesting methods of like positioning cardboard cutting machines so that the company can save costs, or how pe- some employees get like you know a three day vacation with um, money to pay for that vacation for finding some other cost saving metrics. So that was something unique about the company. It just came up in a couple articles, like one in like Forbes and one in um, Tiny Pulse, but I think they kind of reference each other. Anyhow, I thought that was unique. It was a company that I hadn't heard about before, and it was just nice to see a small Canadian company make that kind of list, which tends to be dominated by the usual suspects. Um, Netflix, Fang, I mean, the Fang list, and Warby Parker, Patagonia, Zappos. Zappos is always there, etc. And another learning, um, this is an article I meant to read for a while. It's, I think, the reason I got into it was, I think the article was titled... um, it had Seth Klarman, bottom-up investing, and venture investing. And so that intrigued me because I think that um, has been the kind of style of investing I've been gravitating towards. It's kind of using venture capital style investing in the public markets. And I think the article eventually, like I realized, is looking at Seth Klarman's kind of margin of safety book, really just the idea of looking at everything bottom-up. Um, so looking at individual companies and not trying to make you know trend analysis or you know top down like macro calls or industry trend calls that I think many people tend to do where they'll say oh you gotta invest in I don't know cannabis or you gotta invest in ride sharing and people will have that that kind of thesis and I think I guess there's a stereotype that many venture capitalists are kind of top down in nature where they try to find themes like you know marketplaces for example but the article I think was extremely well written. And it does a great job of looking at um, Benchmark as a venture capital fund and how they tend to be unique in how they invest because they focus on looking at everything bottom up. And I think the famous saying that I've heard um, Bill Gurley and other like Benchmark guys like, you know, Andy uh, Ratcliffe and uh, even like, uh, I'm going to put his name. Uh, Chetan, who's another, I think, partner at Benchmark, who invests a lot of like the enterprise data uh, companies, and I've been enjoying his interviews um, in like the podcast universe as well. But what they've commonly all said is a line that says, "Our job is not to see the future; it's to see the present very clearly." And I felt that was a super powerful line, and because it kind of pulls 
away from the notion that you have to constantly forecast for the future like you're trying as if you know because investing whether it's public or private it's one can say it's trying to master the art of forecasting because you're trying to in one way predict the future but i've never really considered investing to be like that like i've like i don't do any discounted cash flows in my own investing and i've found it to not be a very valuable exercise either um I can see the merit in it, but I highly disagreed with it. And I've always had a more kind of curiosity with the present. And I feel this was a super cool uh, particular quote where how ben- how just learning about how benchmarks of companies and how it's like the focus on seeing the present very clearly. Um, I felt that was very deep. And the article kind of goes in depth into that, um, how, you know, benchmark will look at various complex systems but kind of try to whittle everything down to like the simplest system and i think gall's law uh, explains this properly um, gall's law states a complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked a complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be patched up to make it work you have to start start over with a working simple system and as a systems junkie this was also an amazing quote to read about and it just kind of made me sit there and go hmm and trying to reflect on investing itself, where in one way, when you look at stocks or just kind of businesses bottom up, you are trying to identify this a simplicity um, in that business. And you know, sometimes it can be that this business is trying to create a whole new market. And when you look at it from a completely simple standpoint, um, you try to look, identify the small new market. You try to identify um, you know the liquidity, the quality of the user base, the customer base, how the product is actually being adapted um, and given how markets tend to be this super complex system where you have so many unpredictable outcomes you want to narrow in to the simple system which can be the individual thing that makes up the complex system and the individual thing that makes up the complex system is the business which holds merit to why is important to look at companies bottom up um, and so yeah I think that kind of leads to the notion of, you know, to focus on companies that are adaptable, uh, long-term focused, innovative, and have the ability to kind of generate growth over a long period of time. And yeah, that's kind of all the things that took out from this particular article by uh, Venture Desktop. And yeah, all, all this, all the links and everything are um, available in my show notes. Please check it out at omdventures.com and that's all I have for you today. I hope this was fun. I hope this was light and enjoyable. Hope you learned something new. At least one of the four topics was interesting. Um, something to maybe talk about at a cocktail party in the future. So yeah, thanks for tuning in and take care. I'll have, I'll see you again tomorrow.